Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everyone. Uh, it's January the 23rd, a Monday in San Francisco. It's not just the world's greatest writers, but the world's great authorities on things. One of the lovely things about Keenon is I'm building up, so to speak, a stable of experts, people I go to, to talk about the most important subjects that are confronting us in uh, 2023. And there's no more important subject than the future and problems with the American medical system, healthcare system. And there's no better person uh, to talk about that than my guest today, uh, Robert Pearl. He first appeared on the show in June 2021, talking about how the culture of medicine kills both patients and doctors. Um, it's a very bracing read. The book Uncaring has done extremely well, very controversial. Not everyone within the medical establishment, establishment uh uh, has appreciated it, although Robert is an authority. He ran um, Kaiser uh, Permanente, very, uh, a very impressive, because I was on it for a while, very impressive uh, insurance company in, in California. And then he was on uh, last year talking about the impact of COVID and anxiety and gun violence um, and how it interrelates with, uh, with the American healthcare system. They're both cause and effect. Uh, and so I was particularly struck with a, uh, another bracing piece. Uh, Robert doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't wear gloves in these things. He tells it as it is. Uh, he has a really interesting and important piece in Forbes a week ago on the U.S. healthcare system. He calls it a conglomerate of monopolies in every segment. So I thought I would get Robert on the show to talk more about it. And Robert, before you talk about um, the conglomerate, you might mention the, the charity that you work with, particularly in association with Uncaring, because I know it's an important issue for you. Sure, all the profits from Uncaring go to Doctors Without Borders. And particularly right now with the world in such crisis, healthcare emergencies are popping up everywhere. And so I want people to know that and hopefully support the organization and the great work that it does around the globe. As I said, all the profits from both this book and my first book, Mistreated, go to that uh, organization. So thank you so much, Andrew. So, Robert, it's, it's ironic, troublingly ironic, that many of the defenders of private insurance in America speak about how it reflects private enterprise and innovation and rewards talent. But you argue the reverse. You argue in this Forbes piece the US healthcare system, that includes doctors and insurance and the hospitals, they reflect a conglomerate of monopolies. So it's the reverse of private enterprise. Explain what you mean by this. So private enterprise, and I teach at the Stanford Graduate School of Business as well as the Stanford Medical School. I'm a big proponent of private enterprise, but private enterprise requires that there be a competitive environment to bring out the best in ideas, innovation. And right now it's not happening in healthcare. It's why the American healthcare uh, system is in deep trouble. Light longevity has not gone up in 20 years. And when I look in great detail, why is that? 
what I see is that we haven't made much progress since the turn of the 20th century over 20 years ago. You have hospitals that are still functioning the way it did before, an inefficient type system. And how are hospitals, the ones that are being most successful doing so? They're merging with other hospitals in the area, which allows them to drive up prices, but doesn't require that they take innovative chances, use new technology, do all the types of changes that a truly competitive business might. Drug companies are the same. They've gone away from bringing blockbuster drugs to Me Too medications, to small modifications, and it's why we've not seen anything of great significance outside of the mRNA vaccines, which were funded to a large extent by the government. And now we're seeing private equity come in and buy up doctors' practices with the same approach, bring together all of the cardiologists or gastroenterologists in a community, and now you can raise prices. We've seen that happen, and they go up between 25 and 40%. So that's why I'm seeing this, and it's not just the money. The money is very problematic, but what we see in every industry is when monopolization happens, innovation, radical change, disruption disappears. And I think that's what we're seeing in healthcare today and why we're struggling so badly. Robert, this is the kind of message one would expect from a Marxist, an academic, someone who writes for the nation or the New Republic. But you're the ultimate insider. You ran Kaiser Permanente. You a highly respected authority. Your newsletter gets tens of thousands of subscribers. This is deeply troubling, but the political implications in particular, what kind of response are you getting to your observations? Well, a couple of things, Andrew. First of all, remember that unlike other industries, if you want to sell a car for $250,000 and people want to buy it, even though there's dozens of other options far cheaper, that's a open market. If you want to sell a handbag for $20,000, but there's a lot of other equally functional handbags, that's an open market. The problem in medicine is it's not an open market. If a drug company has a drug, it has to be bought by the people with the disease. You know, People who need a hospital or are brought to a hospital have to be able to go there in order to have their lives saved. This is a very different situation. And it's why, as I say, I'm a big proponent of competition, capital, capital uh, markets, of the uh, invisible hand that does move things when the playing field is level. What I'm seeing, and now I'm speaking as a physician, is I am worried because what I see is the American healthcare system languishing I'm watching the costs become unaffordable for maybe as much as 50% of the population. I'm watching the quality not improve as measured by life expectancy as plateaued, maternal mortality that's worse. So all of these issues are of concern to me, and I think they don't have to be. So I think to the listeners out there, what it is, it's a cry for the change to happen and I will say that many of us know is 
possible and would happen in a competitive world. The problem in medicine is, as you say, it's a conglomerate of monopolies. Well, you say it's a conglomerate of, of monopolies. I, I trust you. But some people might say, well, I can choose to go to Kaiser Permanente. I can go to Blue Cross, Blue Shield. There are lots of private insurance companies out there. There are many different doctors. There are many types of drugs. Isn't that a reflection of a, a vibrant market, Robert? Well, that is one view. It's just not matched by the data. When it comes to hospitals, there's a excellent researcher from Yale, Zach Cooper. He's looked at all the hospital markets across the United States, and in half of them, he labels it uncompetitive. There may only be one hospital in that particular area. And as you know, by state law and by federal law, you have to have a hospital with an emergency room and delivery service within 15 miles or 30 minutes of people in order to sell insurance. So if you're the only hospital in town, which exists, they say, in half of the markets of the United States, you, you can price where you want. I don't know if even your listeners and viewers understand the average price of a new drug this year, $225,000. So we're talking about a pricing system. And when the- You mean that's a price to the, when you say the average price, you mean the price to the consumer before the insurance company covers it? Well, this is a very important piece because we differentiate these two. Who pays the insurance premium? Now, it may not be the individual, although it can be. It may be a business- but if the business is paying the insurance increase in premium, they're not giving it to the employee as a wage increase. And that's why wages have been very flat for the past 20 years. Ultimately, there isn't any insurance company. There is the government. And I'm going to ask you a question or have your viewers think about the same question. So as you well know, there's two federal programs, Medicare for those over 65, and Medicaid, how many Americans, there are 330 million Americans, about 30 million of them are uninsured, so that's 300 million. How many of those 300 million insured Americans would you guess are on Medicaid? Well, you're asking the wrong person. What should I guess? What would be the typical response, Robin? Typical guess might be 10 million, 20 million. Okay, well, let's, 90, say, let's, let's split the difference. Let's say 15 million. Okay, it's 90 million today, and it's estimated by the end of this year it'll be 100 million. One in three Americans can't afford health care. This is the richest country in the yeah, world. Yeah, it's not surprising. But let, let's come back to this issue of hospitals and monopolies. You mentioned that the study by the Yale professor on the on monopoly hospitals, but I'm guessing you. You split your time between uh, Los Gatos and Silicon Valley and the East Coast. I'm in San Francisco. I'm surrounded with hospitals. I'm guessing that this new, shall we say, architecture of American healthcare is a both a reflection and a cause of the new aristocratic structure of America, that in places like Los Gatos and San Francisco and, and Greenwich, Connecticut, there's infinite choice, and yet in... in the poorer communities around the country, which there are many, many, there are none. And there's increasingly that the middle is being squeezed. Is that fair, Robert? 
Um, well, first, in Greenwich, there's not a whole lot of choices. Most of the systems in Connecticut, in the greater New Haven area, owned by Yale. And I think they have acquired eight or 10 different hospitals. If you look in the uh, Pennsylvania area, as an example, uh, you can look at the University of Pittsburgh that has a near monopoly in the areas where it provides the care. We're looking at big swaths, I and mean, you're absolutely right. In the greater Bay Area, there are a lot of different hospitals. There's a moderate amount of competition. You have the Kaisers, you have the Sutters, you have um, less and less of the independent, you have the academics. So you do have a variety where you happen to live. But as I say, you're in the half that's more competitive rather than the half that is not. Yeah, and, and let, me, um, let me sort of add on to that. You, you had an interview with Ezekiel Emmanuel, another distinguished uh, American doctor and researcher, uh, about why he hopes to die at 75. Uh, you had him, I think, on your podcast. He's actually been on this show as well. I'm guessing you mentioned earlier that um, the people are dying earlier here. I'm, I'm guessing there are profound differences in socioeconomic terms, that the, the wealthy Americans, the aristocratic Americans are living a lot longer and everyone else is dying earlier. Is that fair, Robin? Uh, I don't have all the statistics differentiating those pieces, but in general, as you point out, uh, added income usually correlates with better health outcomes and longevity. But what we do know is that they, compared to the other 11 most industrialized nations, talking about multiple nations in Europe, we're talking about Great Britain, we're talking about Canada, Australia, the United States is last in longevity. Five years behind most of the other places. And, and is this just... Um... Is this just, Robert, because of the healthcare system? Does it reflect the fact that people aren't exercising, are eating badly, uh, are watching too much television, or sitting in front of their, their iPhones or computers? Well, there's no question that there's always a societal piece. We call it the social determinants of health, and they are quite significant sitting in play. But I think it's also a question of the healthcare system uh, you take as an example, high blood pressure. This is a problem that should be controlled pretty well. In Kaiser Permanente, when I was the CEO, we did it about 90% of the time. Across the United States, we're talking about 55 to 60%. So is there a group that's well controlled up in that top 10%? Probably. But 55 to 60% implies that it's not that atypical for the majority of Americans. And that's the point that I'm making. It used to be that the poor were the ones who couldn't get access to care. The middle class was able to. A recent survey by Gallup showed that 40% of Americans, so we're talking now approaching the middle class, have skipped healthcare that they felt they needed because they couldn't afford it. And that's not talking about the poorest people because they have Medi-Cal and they don't have to pay anything. We're talking about the middle class. And we're also talking about people covered by Medicare who have out-of-pocket expenses when they go to see a physician. I got the CEO of Gallup coming on the show later uh, in the week. So I'm going to ask him about that, Paul. Are you suggesting, Robert, that this is, and I use this word carefully, an existential crisis for the American Republic? 
I think that there is an inevitable change that will be coming. Existential crises often don't get resolved. This one will get resolved because there's no alternative. And as I've also written in Forbes, I think the people who are going to resolve it, unfortunately, are not going to come from inside the healthcare system where I think they should, the clinicians, the doctors, the nurses, because they're not moving fast enough. I think we're going to see it come from the retail giants, the Amazons, CVS, Walmart, who are coming yeah, into the space. Yeah, very, I, I, I want to spend mostly actually the rest of the, the the interview, Robert, talking about this. This is a very chilling message. Some people might be watching and saying, well, uh, thinking two things. Firstly, didn't Obamacare, didn't the enormously controversial reform that Obama pioneered and that Biden is championing, didn't that change anything? And uh, uh, some people might say, well, why can't America just become like Canada or Denmark or the United Kingdom, have a national health system and and, and then catch up with the rest of the world. So perhaps you might address both those. I know there are complicated questions, but you're very good at answering complicated questions in a simple way. So to answer the second piece, uh, the reason uh, why these things can't happen in the United States is this conglomerate of monopolies. Because any healthcare system still has to uh, negotiate price still has to deal with whatever delivery system. By that, I mean the doctors, the hospitals, the way care is be being provided. So as an example, across the United States today, we have a massive shortage of primary care physicians. So it doesn't matter what system you have, unless you're able to change that, people can't get the preventive services and management of chronic disease that they need. Other nations that have a government leadership have twice as many primary care compared to the United States and a reduced number of specialists with better health care outcomes. In terms of the Obamacare, what it did is it covered more Americans. I said earlier there's 30 million un uninsured Americans. Now there used to be 60 million. So we cut it in half, some of that being by providing Medicaid to people who otherwise wouldn't have been able to get coverage in any other kind of way and some of it because individuals with pre-existing conditions couldn't get coverage and now they can through the exchanges. So those changes uh, came, but the fundamental problem, and I go back to this notion of the monopoly, if this were a truly competitive industry, like everything else, technology, what you would see is you'd see major innovation coming out. You'd see hospitals that rather than just coming together and raising prices, they'd find ways to deliver care more efficiency, efficiently and quicker. As an example, in the United States today, if you're admitted to the hospital on a Friday night, compared to the same patient, same problem on Monday or Tuesday, you'll spend an extra day in the hospital. How do we justify? It's expensive. It's poor quality. It's not what we would want it's just the way the system is, and nothing can change it. The hospital at home. We have a lot of opportunities to shift the venue, but there is no big incentive as long as people will continue to pay. But going back to the existential question you raised earlier, my prediction is that within a decade, healthcare costs are going to be so high 
that people will no longer be willing to accept the system that exists, and they will, and there's some early evidence they're already doing so, be willing to now transfer the, I'll say, the structure of it from themselves to someone else. Uh, you look at Medicare, as you know, for people over age 65, there are two choices. You can have what's called traditional Medicare. You can go to anyone you want, and it's a fee-for-service system, or Medicare Advantage, a more recent introduction that has narrower networks. And when Medicare Advantage was introduced, the expectation was very few people would take it because they wanted all this choice. And now it will be the dominant, more than 50% of the people in Medicare selecting it. I think we're seeing a radical change. As I mentioned earlier, these three giants have all purchased an insurance capability. Yeah, you're talking about CVS, Amazon, and Walmart. Yeah, uh, physician groups. I mean, you may not know, Walmart uh, now has a 10-year deal with United Healthcare. United Healthcare employs 60,000 physicians. You have Amazon right. that just and, and Amazon. I mean, Be Bezos was pioneering before he he gave up the job as CEO. He was pioneering their own Amazon's own private insurance system. Is it possible that a CVS or a Walmart or an Amazon or collectively they'll introduce their own healthcare systems that will compete with the Kaisers and the Blue Cross Blue Shields of the world? I don't think it's going to compete. I think it's going to replace because I think they're going to be able to provide better quality at a lower cost. Amazon is going to do in healthcare what it's done in retail. It's going to and move that's the chilling because it's destroyed the high street. Uh, this is another, actually, Robert, this, I hope this is going to be a book from you because this is a, <laughs> an enormously important issue. To what extent is this also bound up with what we might call the bureaucratization of American life? For anyone, and all Americans have to go through this, anyone, even who want to get a, a doctor's appointment or, 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 or get their monthly subscription, they have to go through these layers of bureaucratization. What is the connection between this ever-increasing bureaucratization of life and the monopoly system that you describe? Great question, because they're very connected. So as the monopolies happen, and the choices become more limited and the prices go up, the people who are the intermediaries, the insurers, what do they do? They put in place restrictions on that choice. We call it prior authorization. So you see your physician, your physician thinks you need to have an MRI, um, and the insurance company is now going to review that, take time to decide upon it and ultimately come up with a decision. It's gonna probably be more no than yes, you'll appeal it, and ultimately maybe you'll get it three weeks later. The problem is that shouldn't be happening. That's too very, I'll call them monopolistic, because there's only five major insurers for the entire nation battling with the delivery system, the monopolies that sit there. That shouldn't be what's happening. It should be painless. You should be able to get your care without having to go through any of those hoops, but it's not gonna happen. You can see each side raising the walls instead of tearing them down until, as I say, these retail giants, I think will come along. You know, we can talk of you all we want about the issues of the workers of Amazon. I don't know about you, I couldn't live without Amazon. I have things delivered to my house. I have broad choice. I have the, the uh, cost. 
I have a lot of decisions about how much I want to pay. They tell me it's going to come tomorrow morning and it's delivered tomorrow morning. What could be more consumer? It beats the healthcare system. By <laughs> so far. You know, I was talking to the CEO of, of a big, big, famous academic center. And literally with a straight face, he said, well, we're really terrible at access and service, but we're still that academic center and people are still going to come. I mean, imagine if a business tried to have that mentality, they'd be gone unless they were a monopoly. And again, it goes back to why I wrote, and I'm still writing that series for Forbes. I hope we're going to get a book on all this out of you. In your <laughs> Forbes piece, it's not all doom and gloom. You do speak of three different innovations to, to break yeah. the monopoly, at least when it comes to hospital uh, consolidation. You talk about leveraging economies of scale, switching to a seven-day hospital, and bringing hospitals into homes. All very logical. Actually, in some ways, it, it reflects what's happening with the office. <laughs> talk about those, Robert. Sure. So let's look where you, where you live. Uh, and and this, is a, this is the conundrum. You see, the improvements in care delivery do require consolidation, but they don't require consolidation as the means to drive up price. They, do, they require consolidation for economies of scale, and that's not what we're seeing. I can't find a single example of that being the outcome where consolidation lowered the price that's being delivered. So I'll give you the example. Between San Jose and San Francisco, there's 50 miles. There are 10 hospitals that do heart surgery today. Three of them do fewer than 200 cases a year. That means less than one a day. How do you run a high quality cardiovascular service when people have emergencies and need that done? Any other industry, those three would come together. They'd have a good volume. They have had adequate number of cases. They'd have added quality. They'd have lower costs. It doesn't happen. So you might say, okay, well, then why are you worried about monopolies? Because we see the same thing happen that when a monopoly buys three hospitals, it doesn't close two of those services because it's being driven by a fee-for-service mentality where it just wants to drive people into those hospitals rather than driving a longer distance to get the care. And that is an equation that works. That's the problem that we see in terms of the consolidation, but it could be, and that's what I write about in the first bullet, it could be significantly better if consolidation led to new efficiencies. The second is the seven-day uh, seven hospital. Are you suggesting then hospitals don't run at the weekends? It's astonishing. Everything else in America runs at the weekend. Exactly right. No, it does not run at the same pace. I mean, obviously... If you have an emergency, by which I mean you're not going to live till Monday, then you get to care, you know, in order to save your still life. Charge you. I know. Every time uh, one of my kids, for example, you know, broke their arm or something, it would always happen at the weekend. You'd always get charged three times more than you would in the week for going to the ER. Yep. Yep. So the, the issue on the weekend, essentially, I mean, it comes down to a staffing issue. And so... We don't think about it this way, but most hospitals do a combination, I'll say, of inpatient work, the people who are in the hospital, and I'll call it more elective work. People, say, replacing a hip joint. So you're, you know, you could come in any day of the week. You're not already in the hospital. 
and we schedule all of them on five days a week and not on the weekend. If you just took those cases and spread them out over seven days, you'd have the staff available to be able to provide immediate care. But instead, if it's a Saturday or a Sunday, people don't want to be working that day. And I understand that. Don't get me wrong. But we have to acknowledge what's going on. And you're likely to sit in that hospital for a couple of days at risk to acquire an infection, at risk for a hospital uh, mistake to be made. And then on Monday, you'll get the procedure done. And hopefully, you didn't suffer any consequence across those two days. But it's certainly not the best quality. You're sitting there with a lot of anxiety and yeah, and, I, and that, I think that reform is a no-brainer. And I'm particularly intrigued by your your third innovation in your Forbes piece, Robert, bringing hospitals into homes. You know, we're all now working from home. You're talking from your home. I'm talking from my home. We're replacing, in some ways, the television studio. How how do hospitals and homes come together in a new age? Well, a great example to me was during COVID. And you have patients who came to the ER, not the ones who needed to have a breathing tube inserted because they otherwise would die, but they were still pretty sick. And they might at some point need to have more aggressive care done. The odds were still, I'll say, low, but far from zero. So a lot of facilities figured out that you could send the patient home. They could have the oxygen monitor. They could have video connectivity. If they needed a medication, a nurse could come to the house and administer it. The cost was significantly lower. And we don't, you know, I don't know if you've ever been in a hospital. I have. I required a couple of days after I uh, broke my leg pretty severely and required it staying. It is a terrible place to be if you don't need intervention immediately. You can't sleep at night. You don't get good rest. You're constantly being disturbed. Uh, at home, it's a lot better place to be for a large number of individuals. And as soon as you start to think, not about individual hospitals, but systems, in my career as the CEO, that's what I did. I kept asking, how do we use the system that we created to provide more care? I'll use an example that we did, which was to provide a neurologist 24 by 7 virtually to every emergency room. So when someone was having a stroke, we could intervene in under 25 minutes. Across the nation today, it's over an hour. And that time difference has a major impact on outcomes. Same thing here. You can monitor a thousand people by putting nurses and doctors in a call center someplace with video connectivity, with ability to observe the monitors, with the ability to manage the patient, talk to the patient. And I actually think you'll get better results than what we get in the hospital today, because we know, you know, between about uh, 6 p.m. and 6 a.m., if there's a problem, you're going to wait to get the care. Here you can have immediate identification and immediate intervention. Robert, you talk about doctors and nurses talking to their patients. You, we talking before we went live about the impact of chat GPT, the new AI conversational bot uh, based on chat GPT-3 from OpenAI, which is going to be replaced by four this year. You suggested to me you think this is going to be as profound an impact um, 
on the medical system as the iPhone, uh, that it's going to be significantly uh, disruptive. Why is chat GPT, in your view, the again, potentially the beginning of a new era in healthcare, for better or worse? I don't know how many of the listeners or viewers have tried it. You can go and download it onto your phone. You can ask ChatGPT any question you want. But from a technological standpoint, what makes it very different than what we have today, as a, which is Google, by the way, that just brought back Sergey Brin and Larry Page because they recognize the existential crisis ChatGPT is creating for the company and they better figure out how they can move forward. One way you get a bunch of links and you still got to figure it out. One way you get a remarkably sophisticated set of information. By the way, they gave ChatGPT the three exams that all doctors take and it passed those three exams. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, and, but what it does is it's a- I don't know why I'm laughing, Robert. But <laughs> it's a methodology. And that's what you have to understand. It asks what comes next. And why I say it's going to be so powerful in medicine is that's the way doctors are trained. You tell me you have a cough, and I've been trained on the next four questions. And based upon the answers to those, I've been trained on the next step and places to go. But there is, a, and I take your point, but this is going to result in enormous legal controversy because there's still going to be a physical doctor in the room. So when you ask about a cough and... You, you read into the answers. And, and if all you have is an AI bot that is trained in this branch conversational technology, then you're missing all the human aspects, aren't you? You need to have a physician with whom you have a relationship. And I've often said, you know, first visit should be an hour long visit to really establish trust and connectivity. But that doesn't mean that you can't have a machine operating on your behalf. And that's where ChatGTP comes in for me. As an example, if you have diabetes and you have to figure out every day the insulin you're going to be taking, ChatGPT can do it. And it also could do a variety of other tasks, particularly with other technology, to make sure you take your medication appropriately, to help you understand anything you uh, okay, might I'll tell you that, but what happens the first time chat GPT, which is used by a, a physician or a, a medical system, gets it wrong and someone dies? This is and, such and an there's been a lot. I mean, there's been a huge amount of literature already on chat GPT, and even its bigger supporters acknowledge that it sometimes gets things completely wrong. Well, of course it does. Well, first of all, Talk about social media getting it wrong. Talk about doctors getting it wrong. There's 200,000 people die. But let's put that aside right now. What I want to stress is, we talked about this during COVID. Our minds do very well with arithmetic progression, one, two, three. We do reasonably well with geographic uh, progression, one, three, nine, 27. We do terribly at understanding exponential improvement. Remember in COVID, the analogy was to the lily pond. Every day, one plant doubles in size. And after 60 days, the whole pond is covered. And I ask you, on the 59th day, what percent of the pond is covered? You're going to tell me 5%. It's 50%. And on the 58th day, it's going to be 25%. And the 57th is going to be 12.5%. Our minds can't understand that. You're absolutely right. What currently exists in chat GPT, I would not want to be using for major medical decisions. 
But if it's going to double every two years in power, the same way that Moore's law has done with computer chips, it's going to be 30 times more powerful a decade from now, 120 times more powerful 14 years from now. I can't even do the math up to 20 years. 20 years from now, it might be two, three, 400, 500,000 times. Do the math more powerful. Now we're talking about a very different machine, one that's so much better at making diagnoses than the typical doctor, one that has a far broader set of knowledge and information. What I think it's going to do, it's going to look over the doctor's shoulder and those 200,000 medical errors a year, it's going to eliminate them because it's going to say to you, Andrew, you shouldn't stop. Do not skip that step. That's the right next thing to do. And why do I say it that way? Because we know today it doesn't happen. In my book, Mistreated, I talk about the death of my father from a avoidable medical error. I guarantee you, ChatGTP would not have made that mistake. Excellent, Robert.